All right, joining us at Crime Scene today is Judy Powell, has over 35 years experience, executive management position for police in Canada and the U.S., teaches for the FBI LIDA, Executive Development Association, and has been to many police departments, teaching them crisis intervention and public information officer and training media, uh, how police to deal with media around the country. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, appreciate it. So Judy, if you could, sort of briefly explain sort of the purpose or reason that uh, law enforcement agencies designate a person as a PIO to deal with the media. Well, you know, if we didn't have public information officers, I don't think too many police departments would put public information as number one when something happens, especially crisis. Um, public information officers, much to the chagrin sometimes of the media, are there really to serve them and to communicate with our community. I think folks need to realize that PIOs are there to help get information out. Uh, it is their main job to communicate, and today, more than ever, we have to realize that communicating with our community is really a huge priority for law enforcement. So now you train uh, information officers and, and obviously there's many law enforcement agencies that they just shove someone in that position and they expect them to uh, deal with the media and with little training, little knowledge. Um, so obviously, explain the importance of someone actually getting the training and understanding. Yeah, it's a real challenge, and I think uh, law enforcement professionals are finally starting to realize the importance of communications. Saying the wrong thing can almost be as bad as a bad police officer use of force or a bad police officer involved shooting. Um, we've got to realize, and law enforcement is getting to that point, they're realizing that Boy, making sure that we say the right thing at the right time so folks can do the right thing at the end of the day is really important. And law enforcement, I think in the United States, has been a little bit behind um, our friends in, in Britain, in Australia, and in Canada in realizing the importance of communications, but we're starting to get there. You started in Canada. I did. Yes. Okay. So. Um, big difference between there and the U.S. and dealing with the media, similar? Uh, significant differences only in the fact that I do believe Canada was a little bit ahead of the curve when it came to understanding the importance of communications. Um, however, very much like the United States, most police departments had sworn public information officers, so police officers that were public information officers. There's a challenge there because when you become a police officer, you're probably not thinking that you're going to be a media person or you're going to be communicating with the media on a regular basis. Uh, I was one of the, the first two civilian public information officers in Canada. I had a very smart chief who realized maybe it would be a good idea to have someone who has some communications or media background. Uh, here in the United States, there is a move towards hiring people with either public relations, communications, or journalism, broadcast journalism background. I honestly think the best combination is having sworn members that are police officers and professional staff or civilian members that have an understanding of communication because working together, they can absolutely make sure we're communicating what we need to communicate. Now you talked to grabbing people with that sort of in their background. So what was your background? What brought you to uh, working as a PIO in Canada? 
you know, I always wanted to be a cop, but I was too short. Uh, at five foot three and three quarters, didn't quite make that five six uh, height restriction. So even though I always wanted to be a police officer, I knew at that point I couldn't be one. Um, so I went into public relations, uh, worked in professional sports for a number of years, and I know that doesn't sound like it would translate over, but seriously, um, communications and public relations strategies and tactics are really the same across most um, disciplines. Um, that interest was still there. I was working as a journalist, a broadcast journalist in Halifax, Nova Scotia, when I had the opportunity to talk to the, the current chief of police that was there and said, I think you're missing the boat on being able to communicate some issues that were going on in their department. And fortunate for me, uh, within 30 days of after having that conversation, I was now working with Halifax Regional Police and it was the beginning of an amazing career. So now you, you talked about being in sports and really uh, maybe be hard to make that connection, but honestly, in, certainly the sports industry is a business and they're there as far as their money and it's about their image. And so certainly in public service, it's about our image and bringing that across. And that's something I know that uh, you speak about highly in trying to correct that image and, and bring that image. So if you could sort of just talk about you know, the, the purpose in that, the, the importance in that in, in law enforcement. Yeah, and, and thanks for bringing that up. I am really passionate about it, and I think a lot of folks might think, you know, wh why do police care about their public image? Well, public image of police go back years and years. It's not something that's brand new. Um, Sir Robert Peel talked about it uh, in England years and years and years ago when he said the public are the police and the police are the public. Folks need to understand, and law enforcement needs to understand, that we need to develop a trusting, legitimate relationship with our communities in order for us to be able to do our job. If the community doesn't trust their police, if the community doesn't believe their police, if a community has no transparency with their police department, they're not going to help us. And, and the, the tie between clearance rates, for example, I mean, that's a term that cops understand. It is absolutely true that if you have a great relationship with your community, your clearance rates are going to go up because you're going to have folks that will talk to people. You're going to have a shooting scene or a homicide scene where the community's going to feel free and comfortable talking with you because they trust you. If you have a non-trusting community, you're not going to get that information. And you will really see when it comes to that image of the department, when there's trust, when there's a feeling that the police department is professional, that they care about the community, that they're well-trained, you are going to have a much better relationship. It's going to keep our community safer. It's going to push our clearance rates up. It's also going to keep our cops a lot safer. So I think when folks think about communication and branding for law enforcement. They think about unicorns and butterflies. Um, and one of the things that I talk about is it's not about that. It's about safety in our community. It's about working together. Um, NYPD has, I think, one of the best, and I don't even want to call it a slogan, but it's, it's, it's the best cornerstone for public safety day. And, and what they say is community safety is a shared responsibility. And folks are now realizing the only way that becomes a shared responsibility is by developing that trust. How do we develop that trust? Communication. Well, you brought that shared responsibility and something that, uh, you know, you had written an article and you spoke about and it's sort of ingrained in police culture is talking about the sheepdog, right? And with uh, uh, Carl Grossman, who goes around and teaches about it, and is a great speaker uh, and, and certainly passionate about the safety of officers. But uh, you've sort of uh, taken that term and think that it somewhat divides uh, the public. It does, and, and I totally understand 
that you know we are we are the sheepdog. You know the community is the sheep. But I think we really need to look a little bit deeper into that. When we make that divide, even with the thin blue line, and I'm the first one that admits I have a thin blue line license plate on the front of my truck. Um, we're making a division between us and the community, and we're essentially saying, "Community, you are sheepdog, or you know, you are sheep." Um, that's really not very complimentary. Um, and by the way, you have no responsibility for safety. I am the person that is responsible for public safety. I am the one that will protect you from everything that's bad. That then says to the community, by the way, you can abdicate any responsibility you have for safety. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the person who will keep you safe. I think we need to rethink that a little bit in the fact that we got to work together. We are safer working together, and the more the community sees that they are part of the public safety equation, that is going to make our community safer. NYPD made a huge change to neighborhood policing of having police officers in every neighborhood, and it really goes back to the policing how it was in the past, where you just had folks walking the streets, people knew everybody, and someone would come up to the community or someone would come up to a community officer and say, hey, did you know this guy is doing this? And that's how you get intel. You know, any good homicide detective, any good gang detective, any good counterterrorism uh, detective is going to tell you, we got to get information from the public. That's the only way we're going to be ahead of the game. And that means erasing that thin blue line and having those conversations. Now, and we've talked about the community on many times. I mean, it's not just about public safety. It seems that uh, police are where everything gets turned to, right? If they have trouble with anything that there's not an answer, uh, then, then the police are handling it. And so, again, that's back to that community relations. And you brought up earlier, you know, uh, Robert Peel, that, you know, community policing is nothing new. I mean, it, it's really, you know, many years old. It, it goes back uh, to the beginning of what we consider modern policing. Uh, we can change the term. We can call it whatever we want today. But it's, it's still about that community and relationship. Do you find out, you, you brought up New York, and I know that you work there. Uh, and it's a fascinating department and so many resources. Right. I mean, I think there are 40,000 40, 40, officers. Yeah, 30, there are 36,000 officers, about 52,000 employees. You know, so the difference between a department of that size and down to the 10-man, the 12-man department, uh, is it just important? Do they, how do they still accomplish the same goal? It's granular. Um, in, in New York, we go down to specific neighborhoods, and they're, they're true geographic neighborhoods. Uh, a lot of police departments are now starting to understand that perhaps electoral boundaries aren't a true boundary of a, a real neighborhood. And by putting officers in the neighborhood coordination officers in these unique neighborhoods in New York, all of a sudden, you have a police department of 10 people or 20 people. And the importance of getting to know folks is so key to neighborhood policing or community-oriented policing or, or whatever the term you want to use. It's really getting to know folks and letting folks feel comfortable in talking to the police officers. What, one of the things that they found um, pretty interesting in New York when, when they implemented um, neighborhood policing was that the cops were giving their phone numbers. And people in the, in the stores and in the community are like, this cop 
gave me his or her phone number and, and look, I, I can call them and, and they actually answer the phone <laughs> or I can text them, you know, because of course nobody phones anybody anymore. We're just texting. And the amount of information that they're gleaning from the community is huge. I mean, to the point, if you join the NYPD now, part of your training as a recruit is going to spend time in a community, going to spend time in a neighborhood and learning about it and meeting those community influencers because every community across the country has those informal influencers, not necessarily elected officials, that are kind of the, 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 the leader in that community. Those are the folks that we got to get to know. Those are the folks that are going to give us a lot of information that we need in law enforcement to keep our community safe. So by New York doing this, what was it immediate result? Did it come over time? I mean, what, what were the results that have come of this or seen of this besides the relationship? What's happened to crime? The, the results speak for themselves. Uh, crime has been at historic lows in New York, and it truly is on the backs of the hard work of the men and women on the street, uh, the detective bureau and, and, and everyone else. But the the cultural shift towards neighborhood policing, you know, it's tough. It's, it's, it's tough to sh shape, you know, to move the culture of a department that's that big to understand the value of this. But one of my, uh, one of the most telling things um, Red Hook, uh, a, a part of New York that had challenges uh, in dealing with its police officers. We were there talking to some folks there, and there was a gentleman, a young gentleman, uh, said to us, he says, you know, back a number of years ago before neighborhood policing, when I saw the police, I would put my hands up. And he says, now when I see the police, I put my hand out. And to me, that is such an extraordinary exemplification of what neighborhood policing is about, that, that we were able to affect a person's perception of their police and their law enforcement by that, that interaction was huge. And, and I think that's something that I, I really talk a lot about too. Neighborhood policing and, and community relations isn't the PIO's job. It isn't the chief's job. It's every single employee of a department or an office's job. So not just the patrol officers, not just the professional staff or the, or the civilians that work there. It's everybody's job because that one interaction, that one interaction a police officer may have with someone in the community is going to form their opinion. And that's huge. And I think that's really important that police agencies and especially police leaders impart to every in their department from the day that they join, from the day that they're a recruit with that department representing. Well, it's something that you had brought up and, you know, we're taught it, but it really sticks that, you know, a police officer may make 15, 30 traffic stops in a shift and uh, not actually remember any of the people. They're doing their job. They're, they're enforcing the law. And, uh, but every person uh, that you speak to, if you ask them, how many times were you stopped on traffic or to talk about that traffic stop, they remember it for life. So the interaction that we have that we consider part of our job and uh, not to dismiss it, it's, it's just part of what we do. It's what we love to do and, and we're there, but uh, we don't have those same memories and the impact that it has to the public uh, plays a huge factor. It absolutely does. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I remember the, I've one traffic ticket um, and I got that traffic ticket. I think I was 21 years old and I still remember the interaction I had with that police officer. It was benign. It was nothing. He gave me a ticket. I signed my name. I got my ticket. But I remembered it. I remember that he was professional. 
I remember that he was kind. My arm was in a cast and, 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 and he was very helpful. And those are the words that I then used to describe the Toronto Police Service. Um, that is, is and, and it's, I think it's really difficult for officers to understand the um, effect that they have on, on folks. And even, and I think it's really important that we as leaders in law enforcement remind our cops what an important role they pay, play. Um, I've had the, the good fortune and blessing to work with Bill Bratton uh, a number of times, former NYPD commissioner and, and chief of LAPD. And one of Bill, one of the things that Bill says is that cops count, police matter. And I think that's important that every cop understand that everything they do, it does matter. And it's it's hard for police officers, especially if they're serving in really challenging environments where not a lot of people like them, where you're not often getting a wave with five fingers. Um, I think it's really important that we get those officers to see that not everyone in a community has horns and a tail. And making sure that we expose our officers to the majority of the people in our community that want to see us succeed, that want to help us, and that they see they're doing good work in their communities. Uh, in, in Baltimore, I'll never forget, we were in, we were in a, a, a pretty tough neighborhood, and it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and, and officers were dealing with a, with a gang issue down the street. And I just walked up the street, and it was the middle of summer, and it was really hot. And there was a senior citizen that was sitting on her front porch. And I said, ma'am, can I come up and, and chat with you? And she goes, as long as nobody sees you. You know, she had that concern. So I came up on the porch and I said, um, does, does this bother you? Do, are, are, you know, are, are you having issues with, with gang members? And she says, I just keep to myself. I stay in the house during the day and I'll come out and sit quietly kind of in the back of my porch at night. And I said, well, why, you know, why can't you move away? And she said, well, I can't. This is my family's home. This is where I lived all my life. And she was so sweet. And I went, this, this, is, this is why police are here. And so I made a point to go back down the street after, after the cops were finished dealing what they were dealing. I said, you need to come and meet this lady. Because that gave them the why. Because sometimes they're dealing with people that aren't happy to see them over and over and over, shift after shift after shift. Right, they start wondering, why am I here? Right. What's the purpose? And then when they had the opportunity to meet this lovely woman, all of a sudden you go, ah, oh, now I know why I'm here. I'm here protecting this lady. I'm here, I'm here trying to, to allow her to live a life that she wants to live. And I think that's really important that, that all of our officers are exposed to the majority of good people in their communities. So now you, one of your expertise is going into challenging places such as Baltimore during difficult times and trying to, uh, I say, turn it around and, and bring a better image and those type of things, something that you're an expert in. Uh, where do you start? Where do you start when, when a department is in crisis uh, that needs help with their image, that needs uh, to rebrand or, or otherwise? Uh, tough question. Every department is unique. Um, I think the first thing is going in with a chief or sheriff 
that is brave. Um, it's a brave undertaking for a leader. I, I, I as, as a support to, to a chief or sheriff or chief executive, can do nothing um, without them being brave and without be them being smart. Uh, I've had the very good fortune of working for some brilliant, brilliant uh, police leaders in my time, and I, I've learned everything that, that I know uh, from them. But it really takes someone who is brave, who's dedicated uh, to the men and women and to the community and where they serve to one, take a look at something and say, okay, we need to make some change. Because you know, there's two things that cops hate, status quo and change. Um, and when you're in there, especially if you're gonna touch culture, oh, that's, that's a tough one. So the leadership needs to understand the value of brand and image and communication and why we want to do it. It's not just putting lipstick on a pig, pardon the pun, um, and just saying, oh, we're going to make this look good. I'm not a spin doctor, and I tell people in, in the classes, the public, the public information officers and other folks I get to deal with, this is not about spinning. This is not about creating some smoke and mirror image. That's not what this is about. Any chief that says, hey, you need to come and help my department have a better image, my first question is typically, well, what are you going to do? Right. What, what are you going to do to change? He goes, well, that's what you're supposed to do. No, no, no. What are you going to do as a leader to change the culture, to change what is happening, to be the image that you want me to sell? So is that professionalism? Is it integrity? Is it constitutional policing? Is it the value of diversity? Once you put that into play, I will be your biggest cheerleader in making sure everyone knows that. But what I'm not gonna do is try to sell a bill of goods. If, if you're actually not doing all those things, nothing's gonna help you. But there has to be investment from them. There has to be obviously. 100%. Uh, they're the leader of the department. Uh, you're a supporter of their vision uh, to drive. Absolutely, so, absolutely. So you've, you've been in Baltimore and Atlanta and some larger cities and, and obviously uh, those things uh, very diverse in their communities and trying to serve so many people. You know, how do you uh, take care of a community that has so many different views, values, and uh, I mean, obviously, I would assume all want safety, but uh, absolutely. Uh, how do you address everyone? Obviously, you can't make everybody happy. Well, you can try. Uh, you know, if everyone's safe, I think that would make everybody happy. I think there's a couple things. Um, one, I think cities need to realize, and most cities realize this, that public safety really is the cornerstone of economic viability. Um, right away, if the city understands that a city can be economically viable because there's strong public safety, it truly is the cornerstone. Um, so first of all, you, you, you need this, the support there. But then it's really important that the leadership of any police agency not limit their listening to that groupthink group of folks, right? There is no police leader in the world from Bill Bratton to Ed Flynn to Tony Batts to Michael Burko to everyone I work with that says, I know everything. And um, what I think in, in my small group is, is gonna understand everybody. Uh, I'm a huge proponent of community advisory boards where we bring in folks of every different part of our community, whether it be our LGBTQ2 communities, whether it be our Hispanic communities, our Asian communities, our business communities, our education 
Haitian communities and listen. That's what it starts with. What are the issues that you're dealing with? How do you want to be communicated with? One of the mistakes that law enforcement has made in the past, and, and changes are happening, especially with social media, is that we've decided this is how we are going to communicate to you. You shall come to a town hall meeting. You know what? Nobody wants to come to a town hall meeting anymore. Uh, no one has time. We're all busy. We got kids. We got this. We got that. So we need to listen. How do you want to be communicated with? Some people still might want to come and sit down with the chief of police and, and listen to the chief talk about things. That's great. But what's important to you as a community? And I think everybody respects, you know, we have to respect as well. Uh, we have to respect people's opinions. We might not agree with everyone's opinion. That's fine. But we need to find a way to have that respectful conversation and to understand that people's perceptions are formed by the way they were raised, their educational background, their gender, the, you know, all these different things, their education, their socioeconomic background, and people see things differently. Everybody looks at a police officer and sees something different, and we have to respect that and understand that. And kind of in the past, we might have been our worst enemy because we weren't out there trying to explain what we really are. We were allowing traditional media to do that for us. So we kind of missed the boat a little bit in allowing someone else to form that public opinion for us when we maybe should have been paying a little bit more attention to it. So you talk about in the past of traditional media, and then obviously things have changed drastically over the year uh, between uh, social media, between uh, just the access to information. Mm -hmm. um, so. Going back, I guess, uh, before even social media, just the fact of things being able to be shared on the computer, challenges that a PIO has faced from that. <laughs> Where do you start and how much time do you have? Um, look, at the biggest challenge today, media itself hasn't changed. You know, what yellow journalism, you know, back in the 1800s, that's essentially, it's come around again. Um, back then, during the times when... Okay, now, I'm not aging myself because I wasn't alive when this was happening, but I've heard that back in the day, kids would be on the corners going, extra, extra, read all about it, the Titanic sunk. And then there's a kid on another corner going, extra, extra, read all about it, 5,000 dead in icy waters. And whoever had the better headline sold that newspaper. Right. That's what we're dealing with today with social media. Whoever has the better com combination of headline and picture is gonna get the click, which is gonna make money for somebody down the road. So media hasn't changed. Uh, titillation, that still sells, you know, scandal, still sells. Divisiveness still sells. Corruption still sells. But what has changed is the speed, you know. Back when the Titanic sunk, it took us how many days, how many weeks to get that information, and if you didn't buy a paper, you know, there was no television, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward to television, uh, a homicide happened at 5 after 11. You weren't going to hear about it till maybe 8 o'clock the next morning, or maybe noon if you didn't have a morning newscast, or maybe if there wasn't a morning and noon, not till you get your newspaper that afternoon, or watch the 6 o'clock news. Now today... Got the 24-hour news cycle. And the public is often finding out about issues before law enforcement even does. It's, it's 
really shocking how quickly information gets out. And, and it all started, uh, the, first, the first story to truly break on social media, big national news story to break on social media on Twitter, was um, the Miracle on the Hudson. That was broke on Twitter before traditional news media broke it. And that was in New York City. Traditional news media not so happy when that happened, right? So that it's, it's really the speed, and that is the biggest challenge because media can be wrong and say, oh, we were wrong, here's the right information. Law enforcement can't. And, and as you know, and, and I know anybody watching this who's in law enforcement knows, you can't walk into a crime scene and look around and go, oh, yeah, I know exactly what happened. I know the MO. I, I know who did it. I know why and I know how. And walk out and have that exactly true. It's not. But that's what today's society expects. And we have to find that balance. And some of that comes from what we call CSI effect from TV because their crimes are solved in 30 minutes. Their of crimes course. are solved in an hour. And I think in talking to people, a lot of people understand that part doesn't occur. I mean, that 30 minutes and, and whatever, but some of the technology that they've come yeah. up with or that they... I'd they, love to have some of the TV technology. Uh, and they do believe that exists. Yeah, Hawaii Five-O, man oh man. Um, yeah, Hollywood has, has done a number. If, if, if people could actually see what a homicide detective's office looks like um, in a major city, it, no, nothing it, like that. It, no. It's nothing like that. Um, God bless the homicide detectives in Baltimore. Um, detectives in Baltimore in, in some of our precincts were working in the basement where cells had been taken out, and they would have a piece of board across the toilet, and they had jury-rigged, I probably shouldn't say this because you know, OSHA's going to come running, uh, jury-rigged um, power down there, and these guys are working in cells. They're working cases off a computer that's, I don't know how old, uh, with water dripping. Or in Atlanta, we were, we were in a headquarters building that was full of lead for years and years and, until they moved. Uh, it ain't that pretty. Um, <laughs> every cop will tell you, it's not so pretty. Uh, they're hot seating, you know. Very few, actually smaller departments um, have a better advantage of, you know, Detectives actually have their own offices. What? Major cities? No, you're hot seating. I leave. I come and sit in there. You know, it's 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 not that. And, and I agree. Um, people expect you can pull DNA off everything. Um, people expect that um, search warrants. You know, if I come knocking on your door, you have to open because if you don't, someone's going to knock in your door and, and come running in. So Hollywood has had a pretty interesting effect on law enforcement. So now, besides the, the CSI effect and those things, uh, which you bring up dealing with homicide, the PIO should have a very good working relationship with homicide. I mean, major crimes and robberies and those type of things, that's mainly what you're going to get called about, is the most serious uh, crimes against persons. So uh, how do you build those relationships? What, what do you need as the PIO? Because that's usually coming from a homicide point. We don't want certain things out. We got to build a relationship exactly. where I know you're not going to put things out that are going to harm my case. Uh, but you have to put things out. I mean, there has to be that mutual understanding of our job. So what is your job as a PIO in that role? 
Here's the thing. The one thing that everybody wants, the police want, the PIO wants, the community wants, and the media wants, is to make sure the bad guy is held responsible, or bad girl is held responsible for their actions, period. So as a public information officer, you have a responsibility to provide what's legally allowed to the public, but you also have to protect the investigation, like you said. So you have to think, okay, what is in the best interest of law enforcement to ensure at the end of the day, we're able to get a case on someone and make sure they're held accountable. That is, it's a very, it's a very fine balance. Um, you asked at the beginning, what does a PIO need to do, that relationship? It's a relationship of trust. Um, I don't think there's any brand new public information officer who's ever come on the job, whether they're an officer or whether they're a professional staff that have come in, a lot of times a former journalist. Uh, I worked for five years in the media before I, I went to law enforcement, and there's this you're one of them. You know, you're 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 one of the you know, you're one of those people. How am I gonna trust you? And it's building that relationship. It's sitting with the guys and talking with them. It's sitting with them and going, look it, if we do this, the media is gonna cover it this way. If we provide this, this is what's going to happen. Um, I'll go back many, many years ago to Halifax when it's a it's a give and take. So I had we had a, a young woman and her her daughter that were strangled in their home. Um, we, we knew who the perpetrator was. We knew the perpetrator was the, the, the boyfriend. You know, we, we knew it. But of course, the homicide detectives say, don't say that the perpetrator is known to, to the victims. And I went, if I don't say that at, on a Friday night of a long weekend, the entire city is gonna be freaking out that some stranger is breaking into houses and, and, and killing mothers and babies. Do we really want that to happen? And they're like, who? So it, it's it could, because you see it from a different way, right? The homicide investigator is very focused on this. And I said, is that what we want? Do we want to create that panic? And, and by the way, the bad guy knows we're looking for him. You know, because it's always like, well, we don't want the bad guy know to know. The bad guy knows. The bad guy knows he did it. So let's just say that you know we believe that the perpetrator was known to the victims, and 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 it, it was fine that way. I, I get it. And I've had homicide. You know, <laughs> I mean, these are funny stories, but they happen. I've had a homicide detective. I got a body in the middle of the street with you know with the steak knife in the heart. Don't say he was stabbed. Okay, but everybody's here with their cameras taking pictures. Um, the media have shots of it. There's a big pool of blood. Everyone has taken pictures of it and posted it to social media. What would you like me to say? I can't say that that's how he died, but if someone says he stabbed, I'm gonna say he stabbed. And, and it's, it's, it's a balance. I get the, you know, they, look at honestly, homicide investigators probably wouldn't want us to say anything about anything. But on the other hand, I think now that there's a beginning of a realization, especially when it comes to crowdsourcing, how valuable information from the public can be. And, and I think a lot of times now with communications, folks are starting to realize, oh, you know what, we, we in Savannah, we put the Crime Stoppers text number on crime scene tape because typically, somebody who knows something about what just happened is standing around, right. right? They don't want to be picking up the phone, but if they got a text there, all of a sudden they're a little texting something to Crime Stoppers, they might provide us with that information. And today with everyone in their phone, 
everyone with their doorbell cameras, everyone with their security systems. Um, we, th there's this plethora of video and evidence and audio evidence that is available to us that probably wasn't available to us even five years ago. And I think now investigators and law enforcement is realizing, wow, the more information we can get, I mean, if I can get a crowdsource of video, we had uh, a terror attack in, in New York a couple of years ago on, on, uh, on Halloween night, um, everybody's standing there with their phone. And we've got officers going, oh, how, how do I get what was on your phone? Because that's gonna be valuable evidence to us. And the FBI at that point was able to give us their crowdsourcing software. Today, there's crowdsourcing software and there's crowdsourcing avail availabilities everywhere. And let me tell you, I think that's a game changer. I think a lot, there's, there's a lot more public safety because people are starting to realize there's cameras everywhere, and and we're probably going to catch you when, when you do something. But you do have to have that relationship with your community for them to send it in, and it also goes back to that relationship with the media, that we need them just as much, uh, whether cops like to admit that or not. When we want to find someone, when we have a missing person, when we have a suspect, when we need to get information out to the public. You know, uh, we do have other options now with social media, and we'll go into that, but uh, like here in our Houston metro area, uh, most of the police departments, even the larger ones, uh, maybe have 100,000 followers, 400,000. Uh, our news stations in Houston have six million, right? I mean, so, you know, there's a huge difference in getting that information out. So you've spoke that the PIO uh, normally is not linked or tied uh, to the investigative unit. They report to admin. They are part of... Hopefully to the chief executive. Not right. just to admin, but to the chief executive. Right. So why is it? It's hugely important that whoever the head of that public information team is, um, you know, you, you might actually have a team of five or six officers in a big department or one, one person in, in a smaller department. They need to have direct access to the chief executive because part of the PIO's job is to tell the emperor when they're not wearing any clothes. Uh, it's not comfortable, but sometimes the boss needs to understand um, boss, if you do this, this is what the community is going to see and hear. It, it, your job is to be, the PIO's job is to be that sounding board. If you do this, um, by the way, I'm going to be the fire prevention officer. If you do this, this is how the public might perceive it. So maybe we should think about doing it a different way. When bad news happens and, and a good public information officer has their ear to the ground with their community and has their ear to the ground with media, and if those relationships with the media I'm going to have a reporter calling me going, hey, you know, we got someone who's calling us that just said one of your officers swore at them when they did a traffic stop and we're planning on doing a story. That's a relationship. Then I can go right to the boss, whether chief, sheriff, director, superintendent, commissioner, and say, uh, boss, we got something brewing here. So I'm going to start preparing something. Here's the thing. If I, as a PIO, had to then report through a captain who reported through a major, who reported to a chief of staff, who then reported to the, the chief or the sheriff, guess what? Anything that's bad tends to get a little bit watered down. Play so the by, telephone game. There you go. So by the time by the time the chief hears that, he's gonna, you know, he's gonna hear some idiot thinks our cop was was unprofessional. 
okay, no, um, that was actually a you know well-respected businessman in the community, and he has it on video, and the officer swore you know swore at him for half an hour. So that's one of the reasons, and the other is goes back to speed. You have to be able to make decisions to release information very very quickly, and if we have to do an approval chain of five people before the chief executive can approve it to get it back to the PIO, you you're lost. Uh, we talk in the PIO world is that you got about three minutes. In a crisis, when something bad happens because of social media, you got about three minutes to set a narrative, to get out there with a message saying, hey, this is what's happening. We're looking into it. This is what you can be doing. This is what we're doing. Because if you've developed that trusting relationship with your, with your community, they're looking to you. Hey, do you know this is happening? What, what are you doing? And we've got to be able to do that. If it takes half an hour for someone to approve us saying we're aware of it, come on. It's, the, the horse is out of the barn. I mean, it's, 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 it's useless. It's not going to work for you. So now talking about social media, which certainly has been a game changer. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in our world, uh, positive and negative uh, game changer. But uh, to what we're just speaking of, while you're not putting it out, and the media may have given you a heads up that you they're going to put it out, there's nothing stopping the person who initially recorded it from putting it out. Yeah. Or witnesses that see it. I mean, and I think one of the biggest challenges we face is the, the unknown of what's already out there by our department. So uh, how do we build those relationships? You were in media, so if I'm a new PIO, how do I build that relationship with my local media? Whew. Um. A lot of it is like, how do you build a relationship with anybody? It's visiting, it's learning about their job. I encourage, especially uh, sworn PIOs, to go sit, do a ride along with your local reporter. Find out the pressures that they're under, find out what their goals and objectives are. Every television station, every media outlet has different um, different demographics that they cater to. You know, some, some of your television stations are the, you know, you paid for it. Where your investigative, you know, journalism group, or you know, where your where your friendly neighborhood backyard television station. You got to have an understanding of what motivates that reporter, and and even reporters themselves. Some reporters are very motivated by I got to get the big story because I want to I, I want to be a reporter in New York City or Washington D.C. or L.A. They're going to want to do stories in a very different way than someone who says, "Boy, I'm really happy living in this community." I I want to be a reporter here for the next 30 years. So that reporter is going to want to develop a positive relationship with their with their police, especially if they're a police reporter, because they're going to be there for a number of years. Someone else who's like, I can hardly wait to get out of here, is going to come in and do, I want to do that hard-hitting police are horrible story so I can get out of here and move up, because no one's getting promoted to New York on a, let's do a unicorns and butterfly stories about the new police canine, right? So I think that's really important is to develop those relationships. I don't know who said it, but there's that great, great quote about it's hard to hate up close. Um, getting to know folks, and not and not only the public information officer, chief of police, or the sheriff, or or you know, or the constable, has to get to know the media. Sit down with editorial boards. Understand what is the motivation on both sides. What because at the end of the day, you talk to any traditional media outlet, what they want to do truly is provide good information. 
to the public. They really do. I don't think there's one media outlet out there that's, that's saying, oh, we, we are in business to screw the police. Now, they are all in business. Don't get me wrong. It, Money is, a, it is, is a business. Huge business. Most television stations especially are owned by about five conglomerates uh, in the United States. And those conglomerates report to shareholders, shareholders demand a profit, and there are ways that people make you watch TV. Um, that's why crises are good. Crises is a good thing because when a crisis is happening, people are watching TV. When there is weather coming in, why do they spend so much time on weather? Because people turn on the TV when there's potential bad weather. So yeah, it's a business, but at the end of the day, seriously, especially, look at, I, I think if you look especially at um, natural disasters, you are going to see the cooperation between media and, and emergency services is pretty extraordinary because everyone just wants to make sure people are taken care of. Is there gonna be rumor? Is there gonna be false information that's disseminated? Absolutely. There was a recent MIT study that came out that says that false information travels, I believe, and I, I don't wanna say don't quote me on this because here we are on a podcast, um, <laughs> but I think it travels seven times faster than truth, because false information tends to be, oh, this is something new, oh, this is cool, and they put it out, right? It's true shocking, it's unbelievable. Yeah, exactly, because right. it really is. Uh, true information is like, oh, okay, this is happening, everyone already has this, so I'm not gonna retweet it, I'm not gonna repost it, but if it's something new and, and kind of fascinating, oh, we need to retweet this. So it, it, that's what makes the huge challenge for law enforcement, is really the rumor control, and rumor control, has really taken up a lot bigger time now in a public information officer's job because rumor control used to be, well, we have to wait to watch the six o'clock news to see what they say, and if that was right, great. If it was wrong, maybe we can get them to do a retraction, which, which is useless now. But today, the rumors show up on the internet and spread like wildfire, and if you don't nip those in the bud, oh, you'll be chasing after rumors, and, and they get legs. And speaking of that, so as a, a PIO or as a leader of a department, um, certainly there's some things that get reported skewed, uh, bias, bias towards a, a position. Uh, at what point do you contact the media to say that was wrong? I mean, what's sort of the, the guideline that this is unacceptable, we need to handle this? It's fact. And I, and I think that's difficult sometimes for law enforcement. Media can see a skew a, a media outlet takes or, or even a citizen journalist or a blogger and be upset by it. Everyone has their, their opinions. Everyone sees things their own way. But when someone fa actually misconstrues a fact, one of the examples I used in one of the cities I worked with, um, the newspaper was calling burglaries home invasions. And they knew there is a huge difference between a burglary of someone stealing lawnmowers from garages to a home invasion. But what gets the clicks? What gets people reading? Ooh, home invasion? Oh my goodness. And I couldn't get them to change that. And that was really frustrating because that is not only misleading and completely incorrect, but 
it also created fear in our community. Sure. And once once it starts affecting community safety and creating fear in our community, that's a hard stop. That's no, we are taking corrective action and we're taking corrective action now. You can't let that happen. And today with social media, we have the tools to be able to make those corrections where in the past, if, if an outlet chose not to make that correction, there would be nothing you could do about it. So that's truly one of the, the, the greatest things about social media is our ability now to hold others accountable for what they're saying. So, and speaking of that, so, and I do think we sort of, uh, we're delayed in hopping on social media to use it uh, to our advantage, yes. uh, by all means. So what are some ways now that we can embrace social media to uh, build those relationships to actually to a point be our own message. Look, the, the first thing, and I think what, what law enforcement is still just starting to understand now, is that social media is called social for a reason. A lot of police departments still tend to use it as a soapbox. It's like, hey, this is happening, hey, this is happening, and there's no engagement. Social means back and forth, two-way communication. Um, also, law enforcement agencies have to realize that if they're not engaging on social media, especially Facebook, there's algorithms that will essentially negate you from the feed of the people that are following you if you don't engage with them. So you actually truly need to. And your, our communities today feel that they need to be listened to. So when they're saying, hey, police, you know, there's a derelict car in my neighborhood, and if that's just going into a hole somewhere and there's no response, then they're getting then they're getting a little ticked off at the police department. All you need to do, someone needs to be actually monitoring social media all the time and saying, hey, there's a derelict car. You know, we're gonna send someone out tomorrow to take a look at that. And that is engaging. That's what the engagement part of it. So that's part of it. A second part of it, which is really great for law enforcement, is the fact that all the great things cops do, and, and you know that there's police officers out there doing amazing things in the community every day. And these are stories that traditionally media might not want to cover. Uh, firefighters get all the good stories. Law enforcement, maybe not so much. Um, and once you post that good news story and your community starts talking about it online, all of a sudden your traditional media go, oh, that story's got 40,000 hits. I, th I think we should do it. So law enforcement now has that ability through social media. If the community's talking about it, now traditional media has to pick it up. So more and more you're seeing positive stories about law enforcement that you wouldn't in the past. And then of course, there's what you and I talked about is the is the holding folks accountable. Um, where in the past where, you know, if the headline was in 72 point on the front page of the newspaper was wrong, the correction was on page eight in eight point type. Now we have the ability through social media to say, uh, by the way, the headline was incorrect. This is the correct information and you can do it professionally and politely. But I think it is important for law enforcement to make sure that we hold folks accountable. Again, it's not just because I don't like the way this story was skewed. It truly has to be taken by facts. These are the facts. You've got the facts wrong. And I think that's really important. And one of the um, other tools, I guess, you know, when we do normal interviews with the media out of their, you know, five, six minute interview that they do, uh, there may be 10 seconds, 15 seconds of, right. of clips that they'll take out. Uh, the ability for us to actually put the full message, uh, pull the full interview, uh, takes away a little bit of ability to uh, misquote or to take things out of context. 
Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of, look at, you do a news conference to provide information to the public. So I don't necessarily need a filter of the media. I, I want my community to hear the message coming from my chief or my sheriff or, or my commissioner or superintendent um, in, in, its, in, in its entirety. And that's fantastic because I have, and even in my experience uh, in Atlanta, I, I've seen where they've kind of pulled this from here and this from here and like one in one did not make two. And I'm like, where did you get that information from? Because it was following a narrative that that station had already established uh, a, a, about a certain incident. And being able today to say, to, to ask the public, to ask our community, can you go and watch that whole thing? And you'll see that's really not what we were saying. And honestly, in, in, in my experience, um, doesn't really sit well with the community. People in our community are smart. They don't want to be misled. And they get a little upset when they see that the media have, have skewed something in a certain way. I think it's, it's amusing, here in Texas, and I can't remember what city it is, one of the, one of the news outlets, um, their new slogan is, you know, we give you the whole story. I'd like to think that maybe they should be giving us the whole story all along. I don't think that should be a new slogan. I think that right. it should be something right. that we, we have an expectation. But media, you know, they've got, they've got to fill only so many minutes and, and they've got to try to balance out their stories and do what they can. But again, there's profit, there's shareholders, there's pressure of being better than the competition. There's the pressure of being ahead of the competition. So a lot of times in their, in their fight to be first, they're often wrong and there's no repercussion. And with law enforcement, if we're wrong, there's significant repercussion. So really different playing fields. Which adds another duty to the PIO is uh, how do you stay on top of what is the story right now? What the, is important to the news? What's happening around the nation? What, what they possibly could ask you that has nothing to do with the story that hand or in the community? That's what I think one of the biggest challenges. Um, made easier today with social media. Um, you have to be a media consumer. As a public information officer, you have to be a media consumer, not only with what's happening locally, but what's happening nationally. I think um, law enforcement learned a very valuable lesson after Ferguson. Um, questions were asked about so many different things all across the nation. It's changed the way that we've looked at law enforcement. It's made lots of changes and positive changes across the country. But we also need to look at what's going on internationally. Um, when there is a box truck ramming incident uh, halfway across the world, we need to be aware, okay, you know, our guys are, are our guys training for this kind of a, a terrorist attack? What are we gonna say if something like this happens? Um, is there somewhere in the country where someone is getting white powder mailed to them? Is there a possibility this could be happening to us? Uh, I think police departments need to look widely at what issues are going on. Right now with the Me Too movement, I have no doubt in my mind that many police departments are going to be facing issues with sexual harassment complaints, and they need to know how to be able to deal with those things. And you have to be, you know, you have to be a media consumer, and you, you need to be politically astute. You need 
need to understand the stand of your city, the stand of, of your leaders, and the way your community feels about things. And I think one of the challenges of being a public information officer is you truly need to know your community inside out. Because different parts of the country see things very, very different ways. Um, the way a public information officer would respond to an incident uh, in Miami versus Seattle, Washington versus Houston, Texas versus Augusta, Maine um, are going to be very different. And it's a public information officer's job to know how to communicate with their community and, and what their expectations are. Now, one of the expertise that you have is trying to prepare departments for crisis. And you've uh, written a book on that as far as a guide and trying to do that. So what are Obviously, we don't want to prepare as the crisis is here. Nope, that's not preparation. So, that's flying by the seat of your pants. So, so what, what are some basic guidelines, things that, that we need to have in place or do prior to a crisis? Because there's that three to five minutes to respond, um, because that's all you got right now. So, you know, right now, everyone finds out about something bad happening all at once. Sometimes our community finds out about it before we do. Um, I'm a huge proponent of planning and having some basic messaging created, knowing what resources we will have available to us, because these crises are happening so quickly. And people are looking to us as leaders, especially if, if we're going to be the lead agency, whether it's, it's an active shooter situation situation or a mass casualty event or a terrorist event or even a police officer involved shooting or a use of force incident, the community is going to be looking to us for, okay, what are you doing? What are you doing? And if we don't have an answer right away, there's going to be someone out there that will have an answer that we're probably not going to like. There are subject matter experts out there. There are highly paid uh, pundits on television that are going to say, well, the police should have done this. They should be doing this. And truly, and, and this is one of my favorite quotes of all time, loudest voices will be heard until a credible voice speaks. So if you haven't built that credibility uh, with your voice already with your department, and that goes back to developing that image and the relationships, no one's going to listen to you. So you need to have that stuff in place so when when you do open your mouth and say hey we've got this this is what we already have in place this is what we need you to do as a community this is what we are doing right now you need to be able to give your community a sense that you got this and that's really important but the speed of it is is what's there now so by planning by knowing just an idea of what you're going to say of what resources are going to be available to you because in the heat of the moment you forget in the heat of the moment we go okay blinders on this is what we need to do and when we have something prepared that says oh right okay yes i need to have someone who's going to monitor social media for me oh yes you know what boy i could sure use the public information officer from the fire department to help me with this that's all already going to be pre-written for you and boy it makes a huge difference when you are ahead of the game at that point and it's going to make everything just run so much smoother it seems that two of the biggest uh, points for the public, and, and you expressed in a couple of stories from New York and the great job that they did in uh, the safety of the community during the crisis and then getting back to normal life. It seems to be the end result is they want it taken care of. They want to get back to some normalcy and safety. Look, at the, the quicker the conversation moves from debating what happened in the past to looking forward of how things were going to change in the future, that's a key. Um, that, that same pivot point is when people stop feeling like victims and they start feeling empowered 
um, as survivors to do something. Communications plays a huge role in that because the men and women of the department are out there doing all the hard work. They're the ones out there that are that are arresting the bad guys or, or that, that are tending to the injured or, or whatever's happening, doing the investigation uh, on a police officer-involved shooting. The conversation, and sometimes people want to continue to visit this is what happened, this is what happened, oh, it's horrible, oh, we're all victims, oh, this is so bad. A good communicator's goal is to say, okay, that happened. This is what we're gonna do about it. And working together, this is how we move, move forward. This is how we learn. This is how we get better. That and also empowering people to do something. I think one of the things that law enforcement often does in crisis is we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. And our community sitting there going, well, what can we do? What can we do that's gonna help? Because people wanna help. And by saying, you can do something, and even if it's something as simple, and I know this sounds goofy, but shelter in place. If you see something, say something. Those are valuable messages because it's, okay, if I see something, I can phone 911. And that shows help. If you have video, please send it to us. Here's the URL. Um, okay, that's what shared responsibility is all about. That's what, that's what Commissioner O'Neill at NYPD talks about, shared responsibility. You are part of our solution. You are part of keeping our community safe. Everybody can play a role in that. And communications, I mean, it is. It, it's, it's one part, and it's not the most important part. It's not the least important part. It is a part of that team that I think finally is coming into its own with, oh, you know what? We got to do a tactical operations plan. But guess what? We also need to have a communications plan ready for whatever this incident is. And I tell cops, if you're doing a tactical plan, whether it be for a parade, a special event, or a protest, you better have a communications plan prepared for it as well. And I think folks are finally starting to get that. On that communication plan, this is if things go bad, if things end well? I mean, is it it's sort of multi or it's just covering everything? Two things. There's your crisis communications manual and your guide that kind of deals with this is what might happen if something, something goes wrong. But I'm also a huge proponent of a communications plan that dovetails with the goals and objectives of that police agency. So, you know, a, a chief, a sheriff, a commissioner, a law enforcement leader is going to say, this is where our department is going in the next two years. And what are the goals and objectives? If the goals and objectives are, um, you know, to, to ensure that, that we implement constitutional policing, to ensure that people are safe in our community, to ensure that our employees know that they're valued, to ensure that we have enough police officers to get us through the next five years so we have to work on retention and, and retraining. Whatever that is, there should be a communications plan that dovetails with it that says, all right, this is what we're gonna do internally and externally to get you, boss, to that goal because that needs to be built in as part of the overall strategy of, of the police department. And you know, it goes back to what we talked at the beginning about a police department is a little bit like a business. You know, We're not in business to make money, but we're in a business of public safety. We're in the business of helping people succeed, and we're in the business of being a, a, a really good steward of our towns and cities in which we serve in those communities. We're all public servants. So we need to make sure that our planning from a communication standpoint is, is that we're communicating that because I go back to the men and women in law enforcement are doing awesome things every 
every day. And I think we've done them a disservice in, in letting other people create that brand for a long time. And, and now we get that opportunity to say, look at, yeah, you know what? There's folks that, that aren't the best in every single profession out there. Ours is very visible. Um, but I think folks, kind of, no, no one comes into this business uh, without a, a heart of wanting to do well for their community. I agree, Julian. Thank you so much. And to wrap us up, uh, you have a company called 108 Communications. Okay, so uh, between that and someone who uh, would need your services from your business, how do they get in touch with you for that? And also, if someone wants to have some PIO training, uh, how they go to a class. Well, you're kind to, to give me a little marketing push here. I appreciate that. Um, the, the, the company, as you said, is 108 Communications in service, of course. Uh, I have a website, www.108communications.com. Uh, folks can go there and, and look at that. I, I, I honestly, strongly believe that Every department has some really talented people in there that are good communicators. Sometimes we just need a little bit of guidance when it comes to, you know, what's the culture of our department? Does our department really understand the value of communications? Um, does everyone in my department share the need for understanding the value of great relationships and great communications? Um, so I'd like to be able to say that, that I can help folks from that. And there's also fantastic training um, through here in Texas. ILEA uh, offers great media training. FBI LIDA offers great media training. Uh, and it's there. And, and honestly, it's not just a PIO's job. We encourage you know leaders and potential leaders, leaders that are coming up, they all need to be able to speak. They all need to be able to communicate well. So it's a, it's a, it's a skill that folks need to learn, and it's also a perishable skill, so you actually have to practice. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity.